Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is one that a lot of people have asked for, Spencer from Ice Nine Kills. Now, these guys have a very interesting story. For anyone who's not familiar with the band, they're, I would say, one of the more popular metalcore bands these days. But they actually started way back in, I think he said 2002, as a ska band. That's right. Checkers, suspenders, the whole nine yards. And although they're doing really well now, it took a long fucking time to get here. Like we discussed in the podcast, it took them a good, you know, maybe 12 or 13 years to get any kind of real traction at the national level. And they didn't really blow up until 2018 with their most recent album. So I want to sit down with him and unpack exactly how that happened, because how rare is it to see a band have that kind of an inflection point that late in their career? So I wanted to hear from him What exactly did they do that made the band take off? How did they come up with those ideas? And also, what kept him going during the years where they weren't getting the traction that they wanted? During those years, you know, back in the mid-2000s when they were doing okay, but certainly not like they were now, I don't know that I would have had the mental strength or confidence to keep going, but he did, and the results speak for themselves. So we get into all that and more in the episode. Really cool conversation. Before I get into the episode, wanted to remind you that if you're interested, there are three ways that you can support the show. Number one, the easiest thing you can do, and actually probably the most helpful, is to share the show on social media, because that helps us grow. As you know, the podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Music don't do a great job of promoting shows, so that's where you guys and girls out there are very helpful. If you want to share it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Vine, if you somehow still have a Vine account even though it doesn't exist anymore, make a Vine about it. I don't care. If you want to share it on social media, tag me, tag the guest, and tag Deanna. We would appreciate it very much. Number two, if you like us even more than that, you can buy some merch. There's a link to that in the show notes. And finally, if you really, really, really like us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. Patrons get access to every show a week early. There's an opportunity for me to review your band or YouTube channel or podcast or graphic design portfolio or any other thing that you want to send my way. So if that sounds interesting, there's a link to the Patreon in the show notes. And with that out of the way, let's get into it. Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, joining me. Thanks for having me, man. I've been uh, watching your YouTube videos for quite some time, so it's good to finally get to talk to you. Well, I'm I'm flattered uh, that you watch, and I hope I never said anything bad about you. Not that I have uh, heard, but I'll, I'll be reviewing some of the videos after this to make sure. Yeah, we'll we'll watch the tape, and uh, and if and c- there will be consequences. I just finished watching. Uh, or actually, I haven't quite finished Ozark. I'm on the last episode of season three of Ozark, and I don't know if you've seen the show, but uh, I was just thinking of the lawyer Helen. She says, "If anybody tells my daughter, there will be consequences." 
Exactly. I, I, I finished that a couple nights ago and I was so impressed with the third season that now I'm going back around. I finished season one again and now I'm in the middle of season two. God, so I, it's just a fantastic show. It's so good. Like I never watched TV in that show. I, and I definitely never like binge watch anything. But mm-hmm. when that show comes out, it's like, okay, everything else stops. The other show that I'm addicted to is Homeland. And both of those give me horrible anxiety. I have not seen Homeland, but I know some people in my family that are absolutely obsessed with that show. So maybe I should give it a try. But I am like you in the sense that I'm not the guy that's always up on which new show to watch. In fact, when I hear a lot of people talking about a certain show, it kind of makes me not want to check it out because I just am bombarded <laughs> with, oh, you got to check this out. You got to check. So you haven't seen Tiger Tiger King. That's the name of it, right? I I did give in to that one, and uh, I, I am happy about that. Really? All right. Well, maybe I'll try it then. I, Anytime, especially with Netflix, if I see a bunch of Facebook hype about something Netflix-related, that usually means I won't like it. But maybe in this case, I'm wrong. I, I am usually like this, but this is this is just comedy. You know, it, it's, it's uh, obviously... Uh, um, a real life uh, chronicling real life events, but it's like it's like sort of a car crash in the sense that you don't want to look, but you can't look away from right. the, from the atrocity. Well, what I wanted to talk about, I'll, I'll just tell you my perception of the story that I have in my head about the band, and you can tell me what part of this is right or wrong, and maybe fill in the story. So, Ice Nine Kills started like I guess fifteen years ago or something like that. And I think you guys found your kind of musical direction quite a while ago. Maybe, like, I don't know. Which is the album that came out with, like, the gray face on the cover? Predator Becomes the Prey. Yeah, yeah. 2013. Yeah, I think that one was, like, where you guys kind of found your groove there. But didn't really pick up commercially to the level that you're at now until fairly recently. I mean, you guys did well. But, I mean, I just saw this dramatic uh, uptick with the most recent album from i guess it's actually two years old now or something and it seems like you know you went through some lineup changes but it seems like you kind of found the right people and then a little bit later found the right kind of you know packaging for that and then everything clicked it's a crazy story man and it's one that i think is a bit unusual considering it took so long to really find our footing and get on the map so to speak and it it took almost 20 years I know the internet, like Wikipedia uh, lists us, I think is the first album was 2006. And that was the first proper like release we put out with packaging and, and uh, when we started to be a little bit more professional about things. But I actually started the band as a, a pop punk ska band in the summer of 2000. A ska band? I was wondering, I saw that on Wikipedia. I was wondering if that was true. It's 100% true. You know, I, I grew up worshiping bands like Goldfinger, Real Big Fish, Less Than Jake, uh, all the epitaph record scene, um, blink, blink, obviously, and uh, we were a pop punk ska band for uh, pretty much all the way through high school. So, like 2000 to 2004, we eventually just started to uh, adapt more influences. You know, uh, I always liked heavy music, but uh, I, you know, I'm a, a pop punk ska kid at heart. You're wearing a drive-through hoodie right now. I am wearing a drive-through hoodie. That that was. Um, probably the seminal label for me that you know back in the day when i started the band the goal was we have to get signed that was number one on the list and you would you would research online like well you know how how did how did you know mest get signed to maverick well you know john feldman took them under their wing you know how did newfound glory get signed and 
I worshipped all those drive-through bands like Midtown and Finch and Census Fail. And that was like the Cadillac of labels to me. And we, like bands back then, remember the days of physical press kits mm-hmm. and uh, p- putting together, you know, getting the the big envelope at, at Staples and writing up a bio. And, you know, I had my uncle take a, a promo photo of us. And if I could dig that up, you'll have a good laugh about that as far as what we were wearing. Were there checkers? There were, che- yep, definitely some <laughs> some ska uh, checkered. I, th- I think it was either a belt or suspenders or something. Oh, s- checkers and suspenders. Yeah. Wow. I think our original original sn- slogan was Ice Nine, music to make your nipples hard. So you could, uh, you can imagine... Uh, <laughs> This sort of uh, the fandom we were into as far as, you know, the whole blank kind of aesthetic. Yeah, we just we just kept pushing forward. And I think that very recently, you know, the, the album before The Silver Scream, Every Trick in the Book, that was the first album where I feel like I stopped caring about the trends. I stopped saying, hey, is this part heavy enough or is this um, going to fit in with what's going on on Rise? You know, how do we get signed here at blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I think that's when we really started to see a large response from people. I had always been into horror, and that sort of always permeated through everything we did as far as, you know, it might be a, a song lyric or a song title or a piece of merchandise, but we never doubled down on the horror thing. And I think I was at the point where I could tell that that was the next move for us. I think something that's important is that the love for horror and, and the inclusion of it in our band and our aesthetic comes from a very authentic place because I've been obsessed with that genre since I was six or seven years old. And I think melding uh, those two loves, you know, my love for music and horror, um, also with the sort of Broadway stuff that I like, like Les Miserables and Phantom, and sort of saying, you know, let's not follow the pack, let's run in the other direction. And that's when I think people started to really respond to it. And uh, I, I know you talk about that a lot, about finding that thing that sets you apart. And I think that that's what we eventually landed on. It took about you know, 16, 17 <laughs> years to do so. The 16-year overnight success. Exactly. But, but something really funny is I was um, cleaning out a storage locker about a year ago where I kept all my uh, memorabilia or, or collections from the band over the time, like flyers and stuff from, from VFW shows. And I found this rejection letter from a label that said, hey, thanks for sending this. We're, you know, we're not really interested now, but, you know, keep your head up and keep creating. And that was from Fearless Records. And uh, that was, you know, 2003. And we ended up signing with them, you know, almost 10 years later. Oh, so wow. I thought that was a cool thing to find. And I, I, I sent a picture it over to um, the guy who founded the label, Bob Becker. And he had a, a good kick out of that, got a good kick out of it. Well, there's a lot of things there that I want to unpack. But one of them would be, you know, you, you made the point that this is coming from an authentic place and that the moment where you stopped caring or or stopped kind of trying to go with the trends is when it clicked a lot of people i think from the outside would say the opposite like oh this is when spencer decided he was you know gonna give up his integrity and just go all in on this corny image thing right and and the the thing that that works so well with with using horror is that it's inherently cheesy you know those slasher movies that i grew up loving especially the ones that sort of came in the wake of Halloween, like Friday the 13th and Silent Night, Deadly Night, all of those sort of admittedly schlocky, sleazy kind of movies are inherently cheesy and campy. And it, it always sort of uh, gives me a good chuckle when I see someone with a negative comment, like, oh, those guys are so cheesy. Like, yeah, 
No, no shit. I mean, that, that's <laughs> sort of the, the, that is sort of the point. And, and if you're saying that you're, you're never going to get it. I mean, especially with stuff like Friday the 13th, those were so tongue in cheek. You know, I'm not a big horror guy, but I mean, even I can pick up on that. Absolutely. And, 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 and for me, you know, even the movies that have very low production value, you know, it's almost like punk rock bands that you, you kind of miss that sort of organic sounding recording or, you know, stuff that doesn't have that super major label sheen. And that's the way I sort of look at some of those older movies. There, there's something charming in a out of focus shot or an awkward performance that I think kind of translates to, to maybe why I like some of those punk bands that, you know, didn't have, you know, weren't playing to a click track or something like that. You know, I don't want to get a sidetracked here, but I'm going to get a sidetracked for a moment. There's a whole sort of area of horror that I remember from when I was maybe, I don't know, in eighth or ninth grade, all these like direct to VHS series, like Witchmaster, mm -hmm. stuff like that, where fuck, there's another one. Well, they're all about somebody inadvertently summoning this like wisecracking demon that, you know, will grant you a wish, but no matter what you say, it's going to backfire in some like sort of way that a 14 year old would think is really cool uh and wishmaster yeah, yeah i remember that yeah, series. Wishmaster, yeah well there's but it's not just that there's like a whole there's like 10 different series like that but i i i'm really nostalgic for for that kind of specific subset of horror that like late 80s early 90s direct to vhs kind of era of horror uh and I, I don't like horror at all but uh that particular era definitely does something for me i do remember i do remember seeing those vhs covers um and and usually good looking girls on the front of those vhs's that you're describing uh yeah it, it was it was a good good way to attract the the, the young clientele such yeah, as yourself yeah. at the time i'm sure yeah, yeah. i remember I vividly remember looking at all those i've never seen probably 90 percent of them but i can remember the covers of the vhs's like crystal clear <laughs> Yeah, like, absolutely, what was, man. What's the one with the girl with the knife behind her back? Uh, that would be, I think, April Fool's yes. Day. Yes, <laughs> yes. I've never and seen she that actually, movie. She's got, I actually watched it uh, last night just because they're celebrating April Fool's. And her hair is like a noose? Yes, I was I was just yeah. about to say that. I was like, I, I'd never seen that before. If I was a girl, that's definitely how I would wear my long hair. I think I would. All, all of that being said, like the joking aside, there's so much imagery to pull from. I mean, the fact that I remember that VHS cover from when I was a kid decades ago, like really says how much there is for you to pull from. A hundred percent. And and the fact that you mentioned that the covers and the VHS art, that's what initially attracted me, like so many other people, I'm sure, to the genre. I would go to the supermarket with my mom, and within the supermarket, there was a VHS store, and I would go in there to kill time. And for whatever reason, I was drawn to the aisle that said horror, and I would I would just sort of fixate on these covers of Friday the 13th and and covers like what, you're, what you were referring to, like April Fool's Day. And... There was just something so enthralling about that imagery that I, you know, I convinced my parents to let me see those films. It took some persistence, but uh, I eventually got <laughs> got got my wish. And, and it was funny because my parents always thought, "Oh, he'll grow out of it." And you know, here we are, thirty, you know, thirty years later, yeah. talking about my love of the genre. So, tell me about the process of the Silver Scream, which I think we would agree is kind of your magnum opus so far. When did you decide to really go all in? Like every song is about a different movie, right? Absolutely, yeah. So the seed was re was really planted 
the album before, which was called Every Trick in the Book. And the way that I arrived on that concept for that record, which is all about novels as opposed to movies, is we were told that in between two album cycles, we should do a bridge track, you know, a track between two albums. And uh, we were working on this song. And the way that I, I generally do vocals is, you know, I, I don't think of the actual lyrics right away. I put sort of stream of consciousness down just to get the, the rhythmic patterns and the melodies that I like, and then go back and put the actual lyrics to it. And for whatever reason, when we were doing this particular song that preceded every trick in the book, uh, the way that I was doing vocals, it sounded like there were two personalities at play. And I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we did a song about Jekyll and Hyde, about that book? Because I can hear these two characters like fighting and thought it would be interesting to, to write that way. So we did that song, it became Me, Myself, and Hyde, and it got a great reaction. And, and I think that was also the turning point where I decided, we're going to be weird. You know, we're a heavy band, but we're going to open with a minute that sounds like it's from the, you know, the opening of Phantom of the Opera. And that did, you know, it did really well. And I thought, let's do the whole album. We're going to include Me, Myself, and Hyde on this next album. Let's continue the theme. Let's do every song about a different book. And it seemed to work well. And uh, I, I, I kept hearing from people that were really into the band. Oh man, you know, what would it be like if you guys did horror and like, dude, what would it sound like if Ice Nine Kills did Friday the 13th or Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street? And I was already thinking that as well. So I thought this just seems like the logical next step. And as far as creating the album, what I did was I, I got the old whiteboard out and I, I wrote down every single movie that I thought would make a compelling song. So I had a, a list in the studio of like, I want to say 50 to 75 titles. And I knew that I didn't want, I wanted to A, cover sort of the godfathers of, of what I consider the slasher genre. You know, you can't do an album about slasher and horror and not include Michael, Jason, Freddie, sure. Leatherface. So I knew, I knew I wanted to do those. B, I knew that I didn't want to do too many stories that were too similar. You know, obviously there are parallels between Michael and Jason, but that's why I said, you know, let's do the, the Halloween song from the perspective of Michael, but let's do the Jason song from the perspective of the counselors at the camp. So I wanted to definitely keep some variety in the storytelling. And C, I wanted to not just do the horror movies that everyone knows when they think of that. I want to introduce our audience to some more obscure ones that had success on a cult level, but weren't the, you know, Pepsi Cola, Coca-Cola brand names like Michael Myers and, and Jason. So I did songs like Silent Night, Deadly Night about, you know, the film that um, was a smaller success, but, um, you know, has a lot of great material to pull from. And then, and then I sort of whittled it down and, and uh, you know, a lot of stuff got left on the cutting room floor, pun intended. I think we arrived at 13 movies that I was really happy with. What's uh, an obscure movie that you wish you could have fit on there but couldn't? I know that there was uh, a movie called The Burning that I really wanted to cover that was released right in the wake of uh, Friday the 13th. It's funny because the, the makeup special effects guru who has become this really famous guy named Tom Savini oh, who yeah, created... Yeah, yeah the look of Jason in the first one actually turned down Friday the 13th part two to work on the burning. So I, you know, that, that speaks volumes about what he thought about the project. And uh, it, it's just a, a really cool underrated film. Uh, you know, and there are like, you know, 20 like that, that I would have liked to cover. Sure. But that, that one is coming to mind. 
Was there ever a moment during this like creative process where you doubted yourself or were you like 100% confident the whole time or how are you thinking about that? You know, we were at a point where we had been doing it for so long. Uh, you know, as you said, the, the, we, we had some minor success and, and we were starting to be able to sustain ourselves financially, not, you know, by any means were we wildly successful, but uh, it, it started to pick up, you know, the warp tour that we had done before. We could see that something was happening there, but I felt like this was really the, the make or break moment. And uh, I, sort of, I sort of used that as part of my motivating factor. Like, we're going to make this happen right now with this album. And uh, I, I was really confident throughout the whole process. But no way did I think it was it was going to click as well as it did. I didn't know that this was going to be the thing that put us on the map. But all I knew is that I was having the most fun I've ever had when creating an album. And I think that that subconsciously, you know, came through in, in the in the writing of it. Because when you're enjoying something, kids can see that. Mm -hmm. Kids can feel that the authenticity. And that sort of goes back to my other point. It's got to be something that sets you as, um, apart from the pack, but something that you believe in. And as, as sort of uh, Kevin Costner speech as that sounds at the end of a Kevin Costner movie, it, it's something that I actually do believe. In hindsight, it seems predictable to me that this worked. But, you know, of course, in the moment, you never really know. In hindsight, though, I feel like there's so much crossover between heavy music and horror that, of course, it worked. But I feel like there's also an element of timing that the sort of cross-pollination of horror culture with heavy music has kind of hit a level that wasn't there before that made this really the right time to do it versus if you did this in 2007, I don't think it would have worked as well. I agree. I think that uh, the timing was, was uh, lightning in the bottle in the sense that, yes, horror has definitely always been popular, but it definitely rides waves. You know, eight, the 80s saw a huge boom mm -hmm. with the slasher craze. It died out because the the uh, genre became uh, just so watered down and oversaturated. Um, and then back up in the 90s with Scream, that sort of yep. set the whole genre ablaze. And yeah, that Scream to me is much like Halloween. You know, it, it set a precedent and then all these imitators followed. Then it died down and then back up with Hostel and back up with like the total torture porn stuff. And, and, and in the last few years, you're right, you know, we're seeing a huge resurgence with the commercial uh, and critical success of, of movies like It, of movies like uh, Get Out, the new Halloween coming out and being such a huge success. And it was time just with the album. And in, in some respects, I did know like, wow, you know, we're doing a song about Halloween. Uh, I know in a year and a half, that new Halloween's coming out. Mm -hmm. We've got to release it around then. And I knew that It Chapter 2 was coming out, so let's release the video around then. All that stuff is very premeditated. But I think that we struck some luck there that we happened to release this album right when we're seeing a huge renaissance of the genre. And also, if you look at like what Hot Topic is now, which you know you can laugh at a hot topic if you want, but I think it's a pretty good kind of indicator of the you know where the mainstream commercial side of the genre is. Like hot topic is like a geek culture store now more than anything else. Like you know what do they call those like Funko figures and horror stuff and Green Lantern shirts and stuff now? I mean that's in a way like horror and geek culture is the new like alternative. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's right there in the name of the store, Hot Topic. You know, they've got their they've got their finger on the pulse of, of what's going on in the culture. And, and you brought up sort of like that fandom 
lifestyle. And, and that too, I feel like is bigger than ever. You know, you're seeing, we're seeing at our shows, families coming to two ice nine kills concerts, all dressed as, as the characters from oh, these wow. movies. And it's like, yeah. And, and we're seeing it, this family will come and there'll be like a three or four year old kid dressed up like Jason. And we think, Oh, you know, that's cute. They're kind of, kind of using their kid as an accessory. And then you'd have that kid on his father's shoulder singing the words to these songs. So there's that comic con kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. culture that is sort of family oriented. And I think that's also part of the, the um, those worlds colliding at the right time. That's a really good point that there is a community aspect to horror. That's not really there with other genres. I mean, horror is never, at least not since like the 80s, has never been the most commercially successful genre, but it's always there. And there's always that, it's kind of like metal, that there's always that diehard community of people who just absolutely love it and their whole lifestyle revolves around it. And there's a community there in a way that's not true of, you know, the Fast and the Furious is commercially super successful, but like, I don't know that there's anybody like dressing up like characters from the Fast and the Furious other than me. Other than you, yeah. yeah. It, it's true. It's like that, you know, it's that nerd culture. And, and that's why I, what I am, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that not only watches the, the, the obscure movies, but I, I watch the documentaries about the obscure movies. And I want to know every detail about the mask and where this was filmed and what kind of knife they used. And I think that that obsessive sort of draw to our band is, is right in line with, with those kind of films. So it's like a perfect storm, so to speak. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, 
You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. So aside from the creative direction, I think another part of this, again, from the outside, that seems to me to be very important is getting the right people together. So JD joined the band in what, 2010 or something like that? Maybe a little earlier? About that time, 2009-ish, 2010. I don't know him, but my business partner, Al Levy, who hates everybody and is super critical of everyone, says that JD's brilliant. So if Al likes him, then that goes a long way in my book as far as his musical ability. And I saw that you guys worked with Drew Falk on The Silver Scream, who is a fucking genius. So can you talk about like bringing the right people together and what role that plays? I think so. You know, uh, when you're a band, you're only as good as the team that you have. And, and that carries over to not just the music, but, you know, to the business side of things. You need the right lawyer, you need the right manager, the right label, the right producer. It takes a while to find the right people. I know that when we were doing this album, we met with a number of different producers. Drew just got it. You know, he, he's a visual guy. He, he loved the storytelling element of what we were doing. And I think that if you if you have the right synergy with people, it, it goes such a long way. Um, and, and another uh, crucial element to the team is this guy Steve Sopchak, who's been a producer of ours for a long time and uh, co-writes a lot of the lyrics with me. Yeah, it, it's just about it's about finding people that complement each other's skill sets and acknowledging where you might lack in some areas and where someone might excel in others. For me, for instance. I'm not a guy that's seeking out a ton of new music. I'm not the guy that's on like the cusp of what's happening. And I don't really like it to influence my writing, but I I accept that it's good to have someone on the team that does have Mm -hmm. that and can bring that element to the table. So I think it's just, it's finding the real checks and balances and a well-rounded team. And I I think that that's what we arrived on. How do you know when you've found a good partner? Huh, that's a very, that's a broad one. I like that. (laughs) For me, it comes down to getting in the room and and working with a person. You know, you could set up a a business meeting to try to, to try and see, you know, do we have the same influences? What what are our goals in terms of of songwriting? What bands uh, do we think that are doing it right? Where do we see ourselves? But until you get get out with them on the field, you're never going to know. It's like mm-hmm. it's like the old saying. It's like you don't know someone until you live with them. You know, they say that you probably shouldn't marry a girl unless you you, you spend significant time living with that person because you I don't know. Definitely advise against marrying someone you have not lived with. That is true. That would be a very yes. bad idea. 
And this whole situation with this pandemic is, is quite an incubator for, for that. So I think we're we're going to see a lot, a lot of relationships probably ruined. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully not worse. I, I worry about uh, wives and husbands in the same area for too long, but hopefully everyone will get past that. So far, so good on our end. Yeah, me too. Although I haven't heard from my girlfriend for a few days. Oh, she's all right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think like with anything, whether it's hiring uh, a new social media guy or a new artist, you could talk until you're you know blue in the face, but until, until we get there in the room and, and, and see what everyone brings to the table, you're not going to know. Well, I'll ask this question. I hope it's not too direct and I don't mean it to sound rude, but I'm just genuinely curious. You've had a lot of lineup changes. You know, you, I love looking at those Wikipedia like, charts with all the different you know members over the years and stuff and yeah usually when i see a chart that looks like the ice nine kills one where there's one member that's been there the whole time and a bunch of other people i go okay that person's a dick and nobody likes working yeah. with them you don't seem to be that person so why have you had so many lineup changes or are you actually an asshole and just you're just good at hiding it <laughs> i'm just a huge asshole um but other than that it really comes down to, I think, a few things. You know, we've been a band for so long. A lot of those members that you see on Wikipedia, I knew when I was 14 or 15. So you think about a high school band and how many lineup changes they go through. So I don't really think of the band starting as far as a sophisticated level until 2006-ish. But all, it's funny because all those, most of those members from high school are like, still some of my best friends you know guys i'm you know you're part of the bachelor party the uh, groomsmen yes in a yes. lot of their weddings and stuff and the guy that i actually formed the band with and uh knew since i was in seventh or eighth grade who left the band in 2008 ish and he was the guy that was always my writing partner uh sort of the ride or die guy he uh actually came back in the fold on this last album and we co-wrote a couple of the songs uh, his name's jeremy schwartz and uh, he's just a, a terrific collaborator, and it was cool to uh, get get someone from the OG lineup back in. But I, I think uh, as far as the lineup changes in general, I think people's tastes change. People want different things out of the business. I've always been the leader of the band as far as from every angle, really, as far as from marketing and from songwriting and from vision you know, not everyone agrees with every single creative uh, choice I've ever made. So I think it's uh, it just comes down to finding the right people. And, and this lineup in particular right now is just clicking so well. Um, and I think it's the strongest the band has ever been. And um, I'm, I'm really excited about the dynamic personally with this new lineup. So, like, what advice would you have for somebody who is, I think, kind of the person that sounds like you've been forever, where you know that this is what you want to do, you're 100% all in, and there's somebody in the band, because I get this question a lot, there's somebody in the band that either isn't as serious or has different, you know, different creative vision or whatever, and they're trying to persuade this person to be on the same page as they are, and they're wondering, should I kick this person out? Can I persuade them? I mean, this is such a common situation. You've been through it before. What would you say? I think that from my experience in doing the band, just like we discussed with with so many lineup changes and stuff, I honestly believe that, that the best way to handle a band is that let let's figure out whose vision this is. You know, who who is there day and night working on the band? 
who uh, is putting in the most time and effort. And I, I, I believe that there should be a single leader in the band. I think there's, you know, there is a place and there are bands where it's like more of a democracy in a sense, like everyone gets to vote, but the old adage of too many cooks in the kitchen, I think uh, is an adage for a reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, I'd rather have a band that's successful where a few people were <laughs> upset initially about a certain idea uh, then, you know, everyone get their stamp on something, but it maybe not turns out quite as cohesive. So I, I think that it, it's it's a difficult and it's a loaded question because I don't know the, the intricacies, obviously, of every band's dynamic and who started the band and who owns the band name and stuff like that as far as legalities. I would say that it is better to, to have one person's vision. At least that's in my experience, but I'm sure it could be accomplished as more of a democracy. I just, I haven't seen it work. Well, that's kind of where I was headed with it is, I think when you're younger, or at least when I was younger, I thought you could sort of persuade people to come around. And I don't think that's generally true. Like maybe it could, maybe, maybe I could persuade you to like this particular chorus or something, but on big things like do we want to be a horror-themed band or not, if if we're just fundamentally on different pages about that, I think it's very rare for people to ever bridge a gap that big, and it's probably, in most cases, better to just part ways. It doesn't have to be any hard feelings. It's just like you want pizza and I want fine dining. I agree. I think if it's, if it's like a fundamental disagreement, you know, something black and white, I think probably the best uh, advice would be, hey, you guys start two different bands and let's let's see what happens. Yeah. On on the smaller levels, you know, if we're talking about, hey, do we want to play Long Island or we don't or do we want to play in the city on that weekend? Right, right, you know, right. I, I think you know, I, I think there is a way to get on the same page with that stuff. But an another thing I'll bring out on that topic is that's when I think a, a manager can be very helpful. When you get mm. into a place where you've hired management or you hire uh, you know a lawyer or a label you know you're paying those people a percentage of your earnings and you know if you don't listen to their advice most of the time it's like why are you paying these people and uh, i found um, our team uh, to be very good mediators uh, in terms of disagreements or you know differences of opinion and uh, also sometimes you know uh, when when the band was more of a uh, a joint effort as far as creative and collaborative decision making in the studio, you know, years back, I often, you know, said, you know, let's find the producer whose opinion that we trust. And if they're, if, if, if we both think two different things about a take or about a core should be this way, a core should be that way, let the, let the producer be the deciding vote and, and, and shake on that. Mm -hmm. That was, it was a, a good technique to move past an issue. We both trust this person in the event of a tie, he's going to be the deciding vote. Tell me about what kept you going, let's say 2010, where there was some success, but I'm guessing you guys weren't making a ton of money back then. And that's the point where I've seen a lot of bands break up or a lot of people quit and go get a job. You know, they're like in their late 20s or something like that. And they're just like, you know what? We're doing okay, but we're not doing great. I'm out. And I understand why, but on the other hand, the fact that you stuck it out during that time is why you're here today. What kept you going then? Because if you're a smart guy, you're not like, you know, a loser that couldn't do something else with your life. I think that there are a few different factors that, that kept me going. I think one is just inherently who I am. I'm a bit stubborn. 
And, you know, my mom and dad used to tell me that all the time when I would be nagging them for, hey, you know, let me watch Friday the 13th. You know, let me let me get a paintball gun. Let me stay up late. Let me let me go sleep at my friend's house. I They would call me relentless or say, Spencer, you are relentless and you won't give up until you get your way. So I think inherently that's just who I am. And I wasn't going to let anyone tell me that I couldn't do what I wanted to, especially with my life. And there are all two stories that I would sort of go back to when I would be feeling down about, hey, you know, why, why aren't we getting this tour? Why are we not uh, attractive to this management company or this label? There's this, always this true story in the back of my mind. One was about this band that could never get signed because they were too punk for the metal kids and too metal for the punk kids. But they kept going, and I think their manager ended up starting a label and that band was Metallica. <laughs> so for me, you know, thinking about there was a time when no one believed in what would become arguably one of the biggest bands of all time. So that story always kept me going like, okay, well, may- maybe the people were telling me I'm not good and it's not going to work. They, they're not getting it right. They're, they're, they're wrong here. So that always kept me going. And then there was another story about a filmmaker that I really respect that was trying to get a film made and you know he went to studio and different studios like paramount and i think it was paramount studios who told him listen no one's interested in films about dreams so the guy took his script and he got the film made through a very small uh independent film studio at the time and that movie went on to be a nightmare on elm street so you think about these stories about these people who believed in themselves uh people not not only people on the street but people in in high up positions who, who have had you know, an amazing amount of success in, in their respective business told them that they weren't going to be able to do this. So those two stories always kept me going. And it was sort of that DIY punk rock mentality of if you're not going to help me, I'm going to get there, get out there on the streets and do it myself. And that led me to do things like, hey, we're not on the Warp Tour in 2008. We're going to get in the van and we're going to sneak into every single Warp Tour show and sell our CDs with our iPods. And that's what we did at every single date. Uh, the Vans Warped Tour in 2008. And, uh, you know, I had a personal quota every day. I wouldn't stop until I sold 100 CDs myself. Oh, shit. That's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, you're walking around for two months. So you sold 5,000 CDs then? We sold 10,000 CDs that summer because we had four or five guys doing the same thing. I don't know if it was... Not everyone's quota was 100, but everyone did very well. I mean, that's no joke. No, man. And that was... Uh, and still to this day, I, I hear things... Uh, or I hear people saying, hey, I... I remember getting the CD from you at Warp Tour, and that's how I heard about you. And that's how we used to book a lot of our tours back then. We would say, okay, well, shows are usually pretty bad, you know, Monday through Thursday. Let's book our own tours around the Taste of Chaos. And so the days that we weren't playing, we would be out in the lines. Each of us would have an iPod back, back when people used iPods a splitter and two sets of headphones so that each person could show two people at the same time. And, you know, that's how we got by on those early tours, hustling CDs and and, and doing that kind of stuff. So to go back to your question, the stuff that kept me going are, are those heroes that I had that I knew sort of had to make their own way and carve their own paths. And, uh, just my, my own sort of relentless, uh, never give up attitude. Another thing that I think is important is you guys were, maybe the success wasn't coming as quickly as you would like, but there was consistent progression in terms of like, I mean, you listen to your records and everyone is noticeably better than the last one. So you were progressing musically 
and the band was growing so it, it's not like it was like a flat line like nothing happening right there, there was a period of time and i can't actually talk about it too far in depth because of a contract that we had signed with this other label but basically there was a few year period where we were essentially there was an anchor around our neck to a label that doesn't exist anymore and there was nothing we could do to get off it that took some a lot of uh, legal proceedings to, to finally get out and to be able to sign with a label and whatnot. So that was a very difficult time. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, we you know, kept our heads down and kept writing and, and tried to uh, get better every step of the way. And uh, eventually, um, I think our, our musical abilities caught up to uh, the vision that I had for the band. And you can hear it even going back to the first one on Spotify is from 2007. And, uh, you know, it's a little rough around the edges, but you can hear that the vision is there even going back to, you know, that far. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's always cool to go back to those old recordings and uh, and see how much you you have progressed, uh, especially like, you know, vocally. I, I remember... Uh, you know, when I was getting really into Blink, you know, the first record I had from Blink was was Dude Ranch, probably, and just going back and, and like listening to to Buddha and Cheshire Cat and being like, wow, man, like think about how far those guys came, and everyone sounded like shit when they started. So uh, it's cool to see that, and I, I, I always like going back and hearing the earlier works from from the bands that I love and seeing their journey, so to speak. I mean, that's another great example. If you listen to Cheshire Cat or whatever, I wouldn't say it's great, but you can tell that the vision is there when you compare it to their later stuff where they were able to actually catch up to their creative vision. A hundred percent. I think that, you know, A&R guys with the golden ears, you know, people say, oh, that's kind of a myth, but clearly it was there because, you know, the, the people that really were experts and as far as A&R and music industry, they could hear, they could hear that potential in a band like Blake, even in an awkward performance, but like, oh, what is that? That bass line, there's something special about that or that that lyric or just the way these guys look is a real talent to be able to see that, you know, the diamond in the rough, so to speak. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is your clothing company. I don't know a ton about it other than what's on Instagram, but I'm interested. What can you tell me about that? So Cleaver was started uh, as basically another creative outlet uh, for for me, you know, stuff that might not necessarily work with uh, the Ice Nine Kills aesthetic, although now with where the band is, they've kind of met in a perfect world. And it was just always something fun to do. Uh, also just, you know, an, another source of income to, to be able to do the band full time uh, a few years back. Without that, I don't, I don't think I would have been able to do it. And it's just me being really interested in the horror culture. I love going to those horror conventions. I love meeting the people in those movies. And Cleaver does a lot of those conventions. And it's just uh, really a fun side project. And getting back to, to bands like Blink, that stuff always went hand in hand with those bands, you know, whether it was Atticus or Macbeth or Famous Stars and Straps. And I think it's just uh, an extension of, of the culture that I grew up being interested in and, and always wanting to, you know, I want to look like the, that guy in that band. And, and, you know, I was that guy. So it's fun to be on the other side of it and, and be able to create for our fans too. How tied to the band is that brand? In other words, are there people who are into Cleaver that don't care about the band? We're starting to see that, that there is definitely um, a percentage of Cleaver people that don't necessarily know about Ice Nine Kills, which is, is really kind of cool. That's great. And I think that's the idea to continue to, to build that 
Um, we're going to be sort of relaunching the brand over the next few months with a, a sort of a new look and a new style. Because I, what I really want to do is, like the band, I, I want to continue to do something different. You know, I don't want the, the brand to be too similar to, to mm-hmm. other brands. And um, I think that's, that, that's honestly the way that you maintain longevity in both in the music world and I think in fashion. Um, I think, you know, you can have a hot flash in the pan and on either side. I think if, if you're creating something that's that strives to be a little different, you're, you're setting yourself up for, for more time in, in being successful. So there's a lot of people that want to start an apparel brand or maybe they start an apparel brand with an Instagram account and three designs or something and they realize how hard it is and it kind of just dies on the vine. What have you learned about running an apparel business for how long have you been doing it now? I guess technically since 2011, but it was it was very just much like, hey, you know, let's order some more shirts and put them up for the first like five or six years. But I would say since maybe 2016 is when we started to get serious and more sophisticated, uh, sophisticated about the operation. And I think that I'm learning, learning stuff every day. You know, we actually ran into um, quite a snafu a few days back. And again, just as a, as a clothing brand owner i'm constantly learning we had contracted um third parties to do a design and one of the artists ended up ended up just ripping off another artist sort of they didn't xerox it but it was clearly influenced by that design and there was a whole sort of a backlash on the internet saying oh you stole my design and saying you know thinking that we did it maliciously yeah a lot of people don't understand that is that you know you as the owner of the brand you don't necessarily know where the artist got this skull from and you you trust that they won't copy somebody because why would you do that but it happens absolutely and by that same token when you're the face of the brand you do have to take you bear the responsibility for it and i actually you know reached out to the guy took down the art offered to pay him and said you know let's work together we'd love to promote you and he was just one of those kind of guys that was like screw you you know you ripped me off kind of a thing but you know you can't really yeah you can't really uh, talk to those kind of people if, if they don't want to accept an apology but yeah it just gets back to the thing of always being willing to learn uh from your mistakes it's just like the music business but i do think there are so many advantages to starting a brand when you already have that that infrastructure of something like a band that that built-in fan base and uh it, it's pr- it's proved to be very helpful to build uh, up to where we are, and I'm excited to see it continue to grow. And uh, we got some big plans for it. Big things coming soon. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's cool. You know, I, I grew up around the Salem area, and uh, I think consciously and subconsciously, the the whole obviously historical nature of that area seeped into who I am, and and that's where the brand is is still based. I love going to Salem during the the October months, and we we usually have a Cleaver slash Ice Nine Kills tent up on the streets of Salem during their big street fairs. And last year, a ton of Ice Nine Kills fans showed up, and we did a little like VIP meet and greet kind of thing, which was really cool. So it's just it's really just a fun thing, and I love being involved in the October culture. So stay spooky. You gotta stay spooky. Okay, well, last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know you did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre-inspired song. That's one of the few horror movies that I actually really like, but specifically just for the cinematography, 
because uh, Daniel Pearl, who is the director of photography on the original and the remake, is a genius. I love that one, but the one I really love is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which I never hear people talk about. That's the one with Dennis Hopper. Yes. Which uh, I think is great, too, and I think people, what they miss about that one is that it really is campy, and and the first one is not. You know, the right. first one is a brutal horror film, and the second one, um, although it was done by directed by Toby Hooper as well, it it really leaned on it leaned into the to, to the humor. It's weird. <laughs> it's really weird. It's bizarre. I love Bill Mosley in that one. You know, Chop Top. He's always at those conventions we go to, and he's a really nice guy. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it, it was underrated at the time, but I think it did find an audience, and it definitely is a cult film. And okay. I, I like that horror, you know, when horror comes out and it's not commercially successful, it, it, oftentimes, if it is good and it has some redeeming value, it will find its audience. Okay, it's not totally embarrassing that I like that movie. Absolutely not. And I, I would recommend, if you haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, The Next Generation, I don't know if you've seen that one, but it features... A pre-famous Matthew McConaughey, a pre-famous Renee Zellweger. And the funny story about that one is that it was made, it was shelved because everyone thought it was terrible. And then McConaughey and Zellweger exploded. I'm talking, you know, superstardom, Jerry Maguire yeah. level kind of stuff. Their agent, they had the same agent or the same manager. And the, those managers work like hell to make sure that that film never saw the light of day because they thought it would you know, ruin their career. The same time, the studio they had is like, well, now we need to release this film because they're megastars. So that's another really sort of funny one that I think you might enjoy, because it's it's more in the vein of the second one. So this is from like the early 90s or something? It's, uh, I think it came out in the mid-90s. Yeah, I think it came out, in the, or it was made in the mid-90s, and it didn't surface for a few years because of that uh, all the hoopla that I was referring to. But the next generation, check that out. I will. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, anything else you want to plug or talk about or anything like that? Any words of wisdom before I let you go? No, man, thanks a lot for having me on the show. As I said, I am a fan. So uh, I, I was watching I was watching your video saying, I wonder if he, he knows about us or is going to mention us. And, and when I saw you uh, mention us on that, I think it was the Baby Metal video. I was like, ah, that's awesome. Yes. And, and I'm glad that you respected what we did because, uh, you know, I definitely respect what you're doing. And uh, I think you've got a great brand. I love the consistency. Appreciate so it. So keep it up. Thank you very much. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works, too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday 
0020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it right down to the shaking microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. <laughs> 